This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about a story that's going on next door in the province of Alberta. This has to do with abandoned oil and gas wells in that province. Now, this has been a problem for the last couple of years is who cleans all that up when a company, say, goes bankrupt and just walks away from that. But the pandemic is making that bad situation even worse. Joining us now for more on this is Global News investigative journalist Mike D'Souza. Mike, thanks for being here. Good morning. How bad is the situation? Well, we're talking about billions, billions of dollars in, in in potential liabilities that are that are that are just around the corner. So, so it's a significant uh, liability that uh, right now we're we're seeing a situation where a number of companies are failing or have failed, um, and as these assets then then get left behind. Uh, you have an industry association that is supposed to take charge of uh, covering it, but it is starting to get overwhelmed. Uh, so at the end of the day, you you will have a situation where uh, the companies are not viable enough to continue paying for uh, to clean up uh, the sites that they have left behind. And so taxpayers have to pick up the bill. And that's that's what's happened. We see this year. Uh, after the pandemic struck that the federal government announced uh, more than a billion in funding. And so some of this money is coming from taxpayers across the country uh, to help clean up wells, not only in Alberta, but also in Saskatchewan and even in British Columbia. So is there anything, though, that the provincial government can do there to make these companies pay up? Um, yeah, what we saw in our investigation is that there have been a number of pretty detailed and pointed proposals uh, uh, of policy changes that would, uh, for example, either require companies to pay a larger security deposit uh, before they start drilling just uh, to in, to ensure that there is money set aside as, as like insurance mm-hmm. in case uh, in case they go bankrupt or in case they fail so that there at least there's some money set aside to pay for the cost of cleanup. Uh, there's also policies uh, that are that are under review right now to change how the regulator or the province evaluates capacity, the company's capacity to pay. Uh, right now, there's there's not necessarily an adequate system that measures the assets of the companies right. and whether they have enough um, uh, have enough. In, in their own balance sheet to be able to cover uh, the cost of cleanup. So that's, that's one thing that's also being looked at. And, and there's other proposals that have been outright rejected, um, you know, including setting timelines uh, to ensure that, that, that 
uh, an old site will end up being cleaned up. And right now in Alberta in particular, uh, we, we have a situation where there's some sites that have been inactive and not being used for decades. Um, some as old as like 1911, if you can believe that. We found eight sites that are more that have been inactive for more than 100 years. So um, there are some proposals on the table, but the government has not yet fully right. implemented or provided details. Now, Mike, I should mention here, you've written a great piece about this on globalnews.ca and I was just reading it this morning and I mean we're talking about some wells that are left on like a a private person's land right like tell us that case of uh, Verna Fippen. Um, Yeah so she's she's one of a number of landowners Um, they you know when when industry develops I mean they might have their own land but in, in a lot of cases they are borrowing land from from farmers or or other other people who live in in rural parts of uh, the country and in her case um, her their family property they've they've owned it or her in-laws have owned the property for decades um, they they have made some money. The companies come on onto the site and they lease the property. They pay certain fees. But then if the companies are not viable or if there are spills and problems, which has been the case uh, either in her on her property or in her area, then there's a bit of a struggle to ensure that uh, the companies are, are going to pay. And, and it, it creates a bit of a problem if the landowner uh, wants to sell their property. Right. Um, they need to then ensure that it is fully cleaned up. And that's a bit of a struggle to push the companies to, to ensure that that cleanup happens. No kidding. What a mess. Mike, thank you very much for telling us about it this morning. Thanks for having me. It's Mike D'Souza, Global News investigative journalist. You should read the whole piece, actually. It's at globalnews.ca. But the number of like private landowners who are now left with something like, in the case that Mike described, their sour gas wells that are corroding and the company just walked away from them. So they're left with these on their property and they don't know what to do with them. It is a shocking number of people who are having to deal with that. So check that out again, globalnews.ca. So vaccine distribution is now underway right across North America. And even as that happens, we're getting sports leagues back up and running as well. You've got the NBA preseason now pretty much in full swing. And the NHL is eyeing a return to the ice potentially for mid-January. They're just trying to work out all those details. So let's talk about how the professional sports world is navigating these times and the vaccine rollout. Joining us now is Christian O'Mell, host of the sports show on 680 CJOB. Good morning, Christian. Good morning, Sammy. Are you surprised that the NHL hasn't worked all this out yet, like the details for coming back? A little bit. I mean, the NBA is a week away from starting, and the NHL still hasn't really said much on their return to play. We know there were some behind-the-scenes, I don't know, quarreling's a bit strong, but there were some worries that the financial agreement that they made in July wasn't going to hold up for this. And after about a month of, it seems, staring across the table, they said, yeah, you know what, it's fine, let's just get to work. So we've had you know, some leaks here and there about divisional realignment and there's going to be an all-Canadian division. But we still don't have anything official from the league. We've heard the number January 13th thrown around, training camps starting just before the new year, just after the new year, depending on if you played in the bubble or not. But Mm -hmm. we're still waiting for details, but we're running on the assumption that in about a month, there's going to be NHL hockey unless the league tells us otherwise. Yeah, so what do you think is the holdup there? What's going on? 
Well, I think they want to. They they're not going to just say their plans in trickles. They want everything completely done before they tell us what's going to happen. We've heard reports that they want to hammer out all the details and then have a vote with the Board of Governors and uh, the NHLPA at the end of this week. And then once that's done, then they'll uh, roll out all the uh, plans. The NHL was pretty quick on this in the summer before the bubble, and they ended up getting a labor agreement out of that. But it's a different situation, right? There's no bubble this time. They've got to realign divisions, which the NBA did not have to do. They just said, hey, Toronto, play in Tampa in, in the NBA. But for the hockey, there's seven teams that can't cross the border. So yeah. it's a little more complicated, and they're going to figure it out. It's just, I guess, we'll forget all about this once they get on the ice, I think. Oh, I think so, too. But so that is that a done deal, then, that the Canadian teams will all play in one division? Oh, yeah, that, that's going to happen. Gary Bevins even publicly acknowledged that. It, it There's no way around it, right? With the border being closed for who knows how much longer. It's going to be a while, I think. There is no obvious way to do this without the Canadian teams all playing one another, which I think a lot of people are pretty excited about, at least for one season, because it's going to reignite some rivalries and yeah. definitely a lot of, you know, in this country, I think more people are interested, you know, for Vancouver playing Edmonton, Calgary, or Winnipeg, or any of the Eastern teams that they would be seeing them play, you know. Well, so, I'm dating myself here, Christian, but there was a time when, for some reason, Toronto was in the Western Conference. I know. And so was, we did play Toronto way more often. Well, yeah, I think the West Final in 94, did you not beat the Leafs? In 94, yeah, we did, I believe, in five games. <laughs> yeah, it made no sense. But, no, And none. then they were, the year before, they played L.A. for the chance to play Montreal in the finals. Like, you can drive to Montreal from Toronto in a day. That makes no sense. But, I know. Yeah. Didn't make any sense at all. But that was the case. So that could be something that gets people interested again. Do you think they got to get moving, though? Because there's a lot of other sports to have a, that are out there. You mentioned the NBA. I watched a couple of games myself this week. So, I mean, they got to get going here. Yeah, they do. And I think they know that. And I feel like they're they're working working on things they're gonna get this done i i, I mean mid-january always seemed to kind of be the the area january 1st was never realistic in my mind but they know it's going to be up somewhere in the 52 to 56 games and yeah i would think probably in the next five days they'll have to say something because people are starting to think all, yeah. right, all right when's this happening you know, they did kind of misstep, though. We, I talked about it briefly last week about there was they floated that trial balloon with John Shannon about uh, potentially buying a vaccine to give to their players so that they could get the league up and running. And boy, that did not go over well. No, that was weirdly worded tweet from John. And I talked about this on my show, too, how he just puts out, hey, this message. And I my initial reaction was this needs more context. This needs more information because this is the nature of Twitter that you can put something out, a one-sentence tweet, and it's like, whoa, 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 hold on a second. We need more information than this. Everyone reacts, I think, justifiably, like, oh, the NHL's trying to jump the line. Then he puts out the information of, oh, actually, no, the NHL, you know, they want to do it when they can, and it's privately available, and then it makes more sense. But, yeah, the initial reaction to his first tweet was, uh, I think justifiably, like, what is the NHL talking about here? Exactly. Okay, so they will be getting going on that. Do you think at some point this in 2021, then, Christian, we will see fans back in the stands, or do you think just one more year where that's not going to happen? I think fans are going to be the, in the stands in some places 
already. I mean, if the Raptors can have 3,800 fans in Tampa Bay, I assume the Lightning can too because it's the same arena. In Canada, we're not going to see fans in 2021, but I think you're going to see in some spots, maybe Dallas too, where you know the Cowboys have already been able to have close to 30,000. I'm thinking the Stars will probably be able to have a few because it's going to probably be up to, unless the NHL says no, just blanket no to any fans, if they leave it up to the state authorities, then there's going to be states like Florida and Texas and Arizona that are a little more relaxed with rules that say, all right, we've seen with other sports, you can have a little bit of fans. They'll be able to have Hmm. some. But I think in Canada, for sure, we're looking at, I don't know, maybe until there is a vaccine, the big question there would be the CFL and what they're able to do with or without a vaccine available for the general public come June. Yeah, exactly. All right, Christian, thank you. You're welcome, Simi. Christian Amel hosts the sports show on 680 CJOB. I don't, I don't know. Unless you have had the vaccine, are you ready to go back to sitting in, a, in an arena watching a sporting event like a hockey game? Or do you think, you know what, one more season, that's fine. I'll watch it at home. You can weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. I am of the, I'm going to wait until, you know, everybody's vaccinated and we're feeling good about being in public with people again then I think I might be ready to go back to a hockey game or something like that. But how about you? Simi at cknw.com. Have you had anything stolen off your front porch during this shopping season? Lots of people are having stuff delivered like left, right and center. And unfortunately, there's a problem that goes along with that, right? People stealing that stuff. Uh, Joining us now for more on this is our Nikki Reitmeyer. Hi, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. The other day I pulled up to your house. I put a Christmas card in your mailbox and what did I see on the patio? A package just sitting there. I almost hid it in the bushes because I didn't know if you were home or not. And I didn't want to disturb you. I, I literally almost went, oh, should I put this in their backyard? And then I, I sent you a quick text and you were home anyways. But uh, it's a real thing. There's so many people yes. getting stuff delivered at this time of year. If I drive past someone's home and I see something left out on the patio, I get a little nervous and I get a little worried. Oh, no, are they going to come I home? Know. Do they know that the package is there? I know. Like with ours, we have a spot on that front porch where most delivery people, nine out of 10 of them, know to leave it there because you can't see it when you're walking by. You can only see it when you walk right up to the front door and then you can see it. So that I'm, and plus we have these dogs that bark, you know, most of the time. And so I was wow. out there 30 seconds later. I just missed you, uh, which is good because we're not supposed to really be socializing anyway. Yeah. You were just dropping something off. Um, and so we're pretty good. Like there's somebody home all day long, but ben, I hear that more and more people are having this problem right now. Yeah, and you would expect it because, like you said, more people are getting packages delivered this year. And Global News, they actually did a a cute story on this yesterday. Catherine Urquhart spoke to a number of people who'd had their parcels stolen. You're a monster, Mr. Grinch. He was right there probably watching the FedEx truck. You're a vile one. I got an alert that my package had first been delivered. And then about four or five minutes later, I got another alert and uh, there was a lady taking a package off my porch. A FedEx survey showed one in four Canadians has been a victim of a porch pirate. Stink, stank, stump. Who does this? You know, who walks up to somebody's house and just, and you don't know what you're getting? You could be getting, uh, you know, dog poop eggs for all you know. (laughs) I know. I, it's so 
it's nasty. It's Grinch-like is what it is. That I'm not sure if you saw that global news story on TV, but they had someone over at Global dress up as the Grinch, and That's then they adorable. filmed him pretending to take packages off of people's patios. I want to know who that was that they made dress up like the Grinch <laughs> and put on the mask and everything else. Right. It is, it's, Grin- it's Grinchly behavior, you know, to go up and steal someone's yes. package. You don't even know what you're going to get. You're just going up there and, and, and taking something for the sake of taking it, and it could be a complete gamble what it is that you're getting, but you're, you're stealing it and ruining someone's Christmas as a result. It's just nasty, nasty stuff. I also, I don't understand, is it a thrill that somebody gets from doing that? Because when you see all the videos of the porch pirates, you're like, well, that just looks like a regular person walking down the street. You know, yeah. like that's, so you're, well, where do you, what are you getting out of this? Somebody might recognize you. Somebody might see you. They might like, somebody might be home. Like you just don't know. I have to assume they get some kind of thrill out of it. I wonder the same thing because sometimes you see those doorbell videos, the ring videos or whatever, and it looks like normal people in sometimes normal cars, they stop and they run up to the patio and they steal the package that's sitting there on the patio. I mean, it's outrageous behavior, but it goes to show with how common this is that you should be taking some extra precautions if you can. Like you said, you know, the delivery person typically sort of hiding the package somewhat when they put it on your patio is always really nice. And I know that you can sometimes request that they will put it in a location that makes it a little bit more difficult to see from the road. I know because we see those pictures online where people say, can you put it under the mat? And they don't realize how big the package is going to be. So yes. the delivery driver just puts a <laughs> mat over a box that's four feet by four feet. But it's not, I mean, it's not cute or anything. You don't, you don't think of the Grinch when it gets stolen. Like that's just, you're just upset at that point. Oh yeah, you're frustrated and you're upset, and it is. It's it's a really frustrating a frustrating thing. And you know, another tip that they often give as well is that even after you've received your package, you know, don't put all of those boxes, the empty boxes, out in a really visible place out at the front of your house. Or you know, sometimes if the box is too big to go into the the cardboard is too big to go into the blue box. I know sometimes people just kind of they, they take Nikki, the boxes Nikki, it's down. It's the yellow bag. They, it's the yellow bag, not the blue box. Is it? We have blue. At, well, I live in an apartment, so I don't know. Oh, we okay. Mixed, for cardboard. Yeah, we have, sorry. Cardboard is the oh, yellow bag. Yeah. The blue box is for your plastics and your uh, tin cans. Oh, see, I, I, in an apartment building, we have a whole bunch of blue boxes, and then they have labels on the top as to what oh. goes into the blue box. So. Different Oof. situation. Yeah, I know. You had oh, to be worried there for a there second. For a second. Yeah, geez, I don't want to be one of those people. It's all the recycling. No, Simi, the blue is for the compost, isn't it? Well, and every jurisdiction is a little bit different because I know in Surrey, it's different too because they have like one big bin that you put a whole bunch of stuff in. Like oh, even glass, yeah. whereas in Vancouver, you have a different bin. You have a gray bin for glass too. But we digress. We don't want to get into recycling issues. Right. This is Long about- story short, be, yeah, be careful if you're putting out a whole bunch of cardboard boxes after you've taken your presents out of them, because then thieves may also be thinking, aha, uh-huh, this person has a whole bunch of goodies in their home, and now is the right time to go and break in. Yeah. So if you've had something like this happen to you, let us know because it's so disappointing. Simi at cknw.com. And so has this been like, have you been hearing about this and more people having this happen? Yeah, it's interesting because Linda Annis, who's the Metro Vancouver Crime Stoppers Executive Director, she said that this, this is exactly the type of theft that they hear about at this time of year. The biggest complaint that we get is having parcels at the front door. Uh, people forget, and you know, oftentimes we'll get two or three deliveries a day. People are watching homes, watching for parcels, and they'll come and pick them up and take them away. Oh, this is terrible. Yeah, you know, I know it's really again, it's it's frustrating and it's 
yeah, it's it's Grinch-like behavior is certainly what it is. So, you know, take those extra precautions. Uh, try to be home, I suppose, when the delivery driver gives you the window saying what time they're going to be dropping off items. But it can be difficult, of course. You know, we live busy lives or people are out working. But hopefully at this time of year, because of the pandemic, more people will be at home anyways hopefully. to get those packages so they are a little bit less vulnerable. All right. Well, we hope that doesn't happen to you. Thanks, Nikki. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Thanks, Amy. Well, let's talk about the situation at Strathcona Park here in Vancouver. Now, we saw a big announcement, right, on the future of the park earlier this week. Unfortunately, it came without a timeline, and a lot of the work that they want to get done there apparently still needs some funding from the provincial government. So once again, announcements that, oh, we're going to be cleaning out the park and we're going to you know fix this, we're going to put people into housing, but we still don't have any actual progress. Kind of like the same old, same old there, right? So joining us now to talk more about this is former city councillor, now, of course, part-time CKNW host, George Affleck. Good morning, George. Hey, Simi. Why, why do they seem unable, to, in your opinion, to get things moving down there about Strathcona Park? Well, first of all, that press conference was quite shocking because there was no representation there. There was no mayor. There was nobody from the province. There was nobody from the federal government. Uh, the announcement was about nothing. It was quite surprising and, and sort of like, what is the point of this press conference? Uh, to announce nothing? To announce no movement? Uh, and that's definitely the case. And I think the fact that they have nothing, they have made no progress, uh, is is a testament to their inability to, to solve this problem on all levels of government. Yeah, but we hear that, okay, they're going to move people into the Jericho hostel. They've got some places lined up. So I don't understand. What's the holdup then if they've got these places lined up? Well, those places would not be able to maintain or, or manage the numbers of people that we have at, uh, at Strathcona now. There are hundreds of people down there uh, of all sorts of uh, circumstances. So uh, there's no way that those facilities can handle that, nor should they. I mean, really, uh, a very successful youth hostel should not be used for uh, long-term facilities for homeless people. We need to build this infrastructure that works for us uh, for the long term, and that requires all levels of government working together focusing on their each of their roles and responsibilities. Vancouver, as I have always said, cannot do this alone. Uh, but yet the federal government and the provincial government seem to rely on Vancouver to be the, the solution provider for homelessness in, in the entire region. So, okay, so then, but is, the par- is it the park board? Is it city council? Is it the provincial government? Like, where is the disconnect here? Well, there's the issue of the park board and, and the cities, uh, you know, the rules and responsibilities of each of those, the park board and the city have have a majority on each of those uh, council and board that are uh, fearful of being tough on this issue uh, because of their base, uh, their political base would not uh, support that. So they have uh, maintained an approach that is uh, wishy-washy, to, be, to say it nicely. Uh, and so therefore nothing gets done. Uh, they're not willing to be tough. And they're not, they don't have the skill set, it appears, to actually solve this problem in a, in a big way. And, of course, this is not a Vancouver-only problem. This is an international yeah. and national problem. What do you think they should do? Well, each role, each government needs to take responsibility for their roles. So the federal government needs to have a, a, a robust national 
homeless and housing program. The province needs to focus on managing the nonprofits and funding the nonprofits to build these facilities. And the city's role really is simply uh, to provide the spaces. Each city, every city in the region, not just Vancouver, have the ability to fast-track development, fast-track you know, the, the sites where this stuff can be built. But they cannot, taxpayers in each city can't pay to build this housing. It's, it's not sustainable. So the province needs to fund it. The federal government needs to fund it and the city needs to enable it and make it happen. Yeah. George, don't you think people get so frustrated, though, because it does feel like for the last five years, we've heard of press conference, we've covered press conferences where announcement after announcement about, oh, this affordable housing development and this affordable housing development, and yet we're no farther ahead. It is frustrating, to say the least. I mean, I think that the, the challenge that we have in Vancouver is there's no regional strategy either. The, the Metro uh, Board oh, uh, councils haven't really talked to each other and said, okay, let's all work together on this because this is mainly a lower mainland issue as far as the numbers go, uh, yet only a few communities seem to be really focused on it. And so, therefore, there's no regional strategy. Metro has a board, unelected. Uh, they're appointed by each council. Uh, but they have a lot of power and a lot of money and a lot of access to, to sites. And so I think there needs to be a, a certainly let's start with a regional strategy and not rely on Vancouver to solve uh, the issue specifically at Strathcona right now, which is going to move somewhere else. It's popping. It's like a you know, whack-a-mole. You have it at Oppenheimer, now at Strathcona. You see tents popping up in other places. And we also have this new policy by the park board uh, to allow tents to be in, in, on sites uh, till 8 a.m., um, and then they're, even then they're allowed to stay if they can argue that they, they need to. So uh, we have policy now that allows tenting in parks. So it's very, very complicated. And the, and the only solution really is to deal with the health care issues, the drug addiction issues and the housing issues all at the same time. You, and the crime issues. The, the, the amount of crime going down on at Oppenheimer Park is, uh, or at Strathcona is significant. And we saw what happened in Oppenheimer. And, and it's interesting, though, the province back then, Farmworth, Mike Farmworth, the minister, said that, you know, they had a confluence of issues with regards to COVID and, and, and the whole park thing, and it wasn't safe. And so they made a decision then to dismantle that park, to dismantle that tent yeah. city in, in Oppenheimer. Well, what's changed? We still have the same issues, and yet they've allowed this massive tent city to grow at Strathcona, uh, with people dying on site, yeah. people having drug overdoses, uh, significant crime happening down there, yet the province is silent. I don't understand. It's, it's hypocritical of them not to have done anything like they did with Oppenheimer. Yeah, you're right about that. All right, George, thank you. You're welcome. That is George Affleck, former Vancouver City Councillor. So right about that whole Strathcona thing. Like, we watched that unfold when they dismantled Oppenheimer. Remember, people moved over to Crab Park, and then they couldn't stay in Crab Park. You would think that on a day when you know you're going to be moving in and dismantling a homeless camp, that you make sure it's not just going to pop up somewhere else, that you help people on that day get the assistance that they need because you've got their attention, you're there, you've assembled all these resources, and it didn't happen. And they just let people go over to a, another park and set up, and now you've got a camp that is bigger than ever there. And despite all those announcements this week, still doesn't seem like anything is going to happen anytime soon. We'll keep you posted, though, on that one for sure. So earlier with Von Palmer, we were talking about Premier John Horgan yesterday saying, well, you know, he'd really like to keep the increase in disability payments, but for now, that's not going to happen. The cut comes January 1st. A further reduction for people on disability assistance comes in March. So that means that $300 a month they have been getting more since April 1st will no longer be the case after March. 
So currently, people on disability receive less than $1,200 a month. That is not enough to live on. What's it going to take to change this situation? Joining us now is Vivica Ellis, a community organizer at the BC Poverty Reduction Coalition. Vivica, thank you for being here. Thank you very much, Jimmy. Lovely to be here. You must have been so disappointed to hear what Premier Horgan had to say yesterday. Absolutely. The $300 supplemental uh, benefit that was uh, rolled out at the height of the pandemic was absolutely the right thing to do. Um, It impacts the poorest and most at-risk British Columbians. Um, It's impacted their food security very much. So to roll back 150 um, and then to further roll back the other 150 really plunges um, some of the poorest families and children and individuals in British Columbia further into poverty at the height of the pandemic. So we are shocked and we're calling for it to be immediately reversed. Yeah, what, what kind of a difference did that $300 make in the lives of people? Mm-hmm. Well, you see, our poverty, um, our welfare and disability rates at this time are legislated very far below the poverty line. The market basket measure poverty line for a single individual in a populated region in British Columbia is around $2,000 a month. Um, But that uh, single person on income assistance receives $760 a month. Um, So even with the $300 supplement, somebody is still left 50% below our poverty line, which is a calculation of what we need for a very basic standard of living. So the $300, what we've heard from communities far and wide, is that it, it allowed them to go to the grocery store and buy the protein and the fresh fruit and vegetables that they usually have to only access through charitable food hubs and food banks. So at this time of the year, also, when we're very, very focused on charitable food, we have to remember that the people who are traveling down to the food banks that we may be donating to as British Columbians, um, we have just taken money from them. We have just, this move takes food off of their dinner table. So there's really a vicious uh, cycle here around food insecurity um, and, and a great depth of poverty that we're really legislating for many 200,000 people in British Columbia, including around 30,000 kids. Um, to be accurate. So one of the other things that we heard Premier Horgan say yesterday was, you know, he'd like to see this made permanent, but he's only one voice at the cabinet table. What did you think about that? Well, therein lies our job. Um, You know, I work very closely with many community groups, with many people who are directly impacted, um, uh, who live on disability and income assistance, uh, the 300 to Live campaign. Um, And, uh, you know, if anybody wants to take action on this front, um, the 300 to Live campaign has a click and send letter um, that can be sent in. We've already had some emergency meetings with government and we will continue to advocate. But what we're uh, going for, Simi, really is the long-term perspective. So this um, you know, $1.7 billion slash in the pan, BC mm-hmm. recovery benefit. We've cut $35 million um, from the, the, the supplemental benefit for those on income and disability assistance. So really, we're cutting spending um, that impacts the poorest British Columbians to finance something that we're really spreading far and wide across the middle class. So we know the evidence-based public policy interventions that truly have a long-term impact on poverty are the durable income supports. So we're advocating to raise uh, the income and disability rates right up to the poverty line. Um, And we know that British Columbians and Canadians understand the value and the importance of that because I think the $2,000 sort of standard that was set by the CERB as a a basic really illustrated to all of us the necessity um, of building up 
uh, our social safety right. net because it really is there to catch us all. Now, Vivica, do you think that did make, like when you talk about that making a difference, do you think that changed people's perception of what it means? Like you think, wow, okay, look how difficult it is to live on $2,000 a month and people realize, wow, there's people living on less than that. Absolutely. Um, and, and I really would give a lot of credit to all the community members who've come forward um, you know, over the past few months and, and even in recent media this week to share the impact. I know the 300 to Live campaign gathered you know, over 200 impact statements. Um, absolutely. And I think that, that you know, the pandemic also revealed how compassionate we are, you know, we saw people caring for their neighbors, protecting their neighbors. And I think we have to, it's time to apply this compassion um, to, to these kinds of, to gain the public will and the political will that we need to really build our social safety net up to make sure that we're not leaving anybody behind. Because to take $35 million from those who are the most destitute in this province, the people who are lining up outside food banks, and to apply that to this, you know, massive BC recovery benefit at this time, um, Christmas as well, that you're at the height oh, of the yeah. pandemic is it's really um it's 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 really not the not the evidence based approach that we want government to be taking at this time. Right. So how do you feel about the chances of getting something done about this, like leading towards the budget? There's a new finance minister. Do you think some minds can be changed on this? I do. Um I think, you know, we will be having all the dialogues that we need to have. Um, and that, you know, includes the Premier's office, the Ministry of Finance, and many other ministries. Um, but we also have a poverty reduction strategy in place. Um, and we legislated targets and timelines to reduce poverty in 2018. So those targets are to reduce child poverty 50% um, by 2024 and to reduce overall poverty in British Columbia 25% by 2024. Now, we wanted more ambitious targets, but we have a mandate in place. So we will be talking to government about the importance of that mandate and the the funding and the support we need behind the policy but the bottom line is to shift everybody up on income and disability assistance to the to the poverty line um, would immediately pull 200,000 people at least right up over the poverty line so you know when it comes to precarious work um, you know we have about 557,000 people in poverty in British Columbia a lot of complex policy that we need to tackle poverty but this one mm-hmm. um, you know we know what works and just to point out when we rolled out the Canada child benefit federally a couple of years ago child poverty the greatest children in the greatest depths of poverty in their food security was reduced 30 percent so we know that the durable income supports work we have all the evidence to to, to prove that mm-hmm. but again I think they need to hear from the public as well that, you know, when, when we look at our window or we think, I want to do that right thing at Christmas, I'm going to take a can of soup down to the food bank. We have to think of the system that we're upholding um, because poverty is also racialized and gendered. And in our legislation, we point out 13 equity-seeking groups um, that need to be targeted by our poverty reduction strategy. So we also need to think about who is disproportionately in poverty, um, and that is women, single mothers, seniors, uh, black Canadians and racialized people. Um, and our government has a, a very strong anti-racism mandate across all ministries, mm-hmm. a very strong gender equality mandate across all ministries. Um, and uh, we need to, 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 to really move ahead boldly with our poverty reduction strategy, target the complexity of poverty for the 13 equity-seeking groups that we've identified. Um, and we can start by, by reversing... Right. 
um, the, the cash clawback of the 150 and raising the rates further to the market basket measure in the budget in March. That oh. is what we're asking for. We'll <laughs> see what happens. Vivica, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Sammy. Thank you for having me on. That's Vivica Ellis, community organizer at the BC Poverty Reduction Coalition. Disappointed that those supports are going away, of course, but somewhat hopeful that they can convince the government to do something else in the upcoming provincial budget. And of course, we'll be talking more about that. Let's talk about that massive landslide you've been hearing about in the news. This happened in the Central Coast area. May have wiped out, they say, an entire generation of salmon. That's according to local community leaders. Our Nikki Reitmeyer had a chance to speak with Hamalco First Nation Chief Darren Blaney this morning, and it was just as he was getting ready to go on a helicopter tour to observe the damage. Can you describe what this area looks like after this massive landslide? Well, actually, we're we're heading up there this morning. Um, we're flying up there on a helicopter, and uh, we're going to be heading out uh, shortly within the next half hour. We're going to go to the helicopter and fly up there, but. The damage we've seen is from the footage from the helicopter there. And uh, so we want to go and assess it ourselves to see um, what kind of uh, salmon habitat has been impacted and uh, some of the uh, logging roads that have been washed out and bridges and stuff. And I understand there's a cabin that was also washed away as well. And it sounds like that this could be a real crisis for the salmon that are in that area. Yes, it, it will be. Um, there's lots of uh, spawning habitat for uh, chum and also some of the uh, coho probably impacted as well. But the, the chum stocks are, were, were a fairly strong run there, so we're, we're very concerned about that. And our chum stocks have been getting depleted in the last few years. And uh, we're looking at the... Um, Actually, it's, it's, we've been in consultation with DFO on the uh, fish farms. And when our fry come out of Southgate, Hamasco, and Orford, and they head out and they head out right into the fish farms, and those are also problems. And we're hoping for a, a good decision coming out this uh, Friday. But those are definitely going to be have to be part of the consideration in this uh, decision that's going to come down. And uh, we're going to have to try and rebuild those stocks that are lost. Mm-hmm. How important are those fish stocks to your community? Well, it's been the the stocks that uh, our chum allocations. We get we're supposed to get about four thousand chum each year for our community, and um, about a year ago or so, we we lo- uh, we only got twelve hundred of that four thousand. So um, we took nine hundred and gave it out to the community. And there's another community south of us that didn't get theirs, so we gave their elders three hundred of our. 1200 so it's uh it is starting to impact the um the chum stocks and so this will further do further damage to the chum stocks that we're relying on i imagine that this landslide will affect your community in other ways as well eh well there's the uh, tourism as well we have um air tours in the next river down which is orford about halfway up the inlet and um we have uh, many tour operators in Campbell River and others around that uh, rely on the bear tours each summer for the tourism dollars that come in from that from all over the world. And um, that's going to be impacted because uh, the bears will follow the salmon and they'll, they'll go over the uh, glaciers to get into Orford and over the glaciers to get into Toba Inlet with uh, the Clahoos also have a bear tours operating in their territory as well. And, 
the salmon that are coming out of the Damasco River. So all of those rivers are... Southgate was the stronger Trump River for us, and it uh, looks like it's going to be uh, pretty severely impacted. Mm-hmm. And on top of all of this, you're expecting an announcement soon from the Department of Fisheries on fish farms as well. Well, the DFO minister, uh, Jordan, Bernadette Jordan, is going to make a decision on the fish farms tomorrow. But um, she's supposed to announce it tomorrow, but um, it's going to be um, a pretty critical decision for our jump stocks, whether to remove the fish farms or not. And um, we're hoping she'll, she'll act in the best interest of wild salmon. That is Himalco First Nation Chief Darren Blaney talking about that landslide in the Central Coast area. Lots of concerns about the salmon situation there. And I know that they're still trying to figure out the extent of all of the damage and what's been going on. So we will continue to tell you about that story.